I didn't turn. Yes, I did. It's live. Go ahead. It's, it's not cold. Right. Uh, quaff. Sun on the horizon. Condense circle time. I call with all my heart. Answer me, O Lord, and I will obey your decrees. I call out to you. Save me, and I will keep your statutes. I rise before the dawn, dawn and cry for help. I have put my hope in your word. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promises. Hear my voice in accordance with your love. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your laws. Those who devise wicked schemes are near, but they are far from your law. Yet you are near me, O Lord, and all your commands are true. Long ago I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. Good deal. Okay, lots of prayer requests this week. Let's see here. I'll start with Lee. He emailed, and I didn't have time to write it down. Um, uh, my aunt Sylvia is his mother's sister. They've just reconnected after 20 years, and the timing is kind of rough. She's in critical care and probably doesn't have much time left, and I'm assuming it's the sister, not his mother. Uh, my mother said, ask for prayer that the Lord will ease her pain and take care of her according to his will. So we'll pray for that. And let's see here, Leo and Irina still trying to determine the cause of the previous bleeding she had and if there's any remedy needed, but they, they have had no bleeding problems since we talked about that a month ago. Um, Anne-Marie, uh, Kim's granddaughter, had several major issues that are hindering their, their development. She had two granddaughters, Anne-Marie and Aubrey. I got an email today that Aubrey... They're completely stunned that she's completely fine. They did some x-rays, and the problems that she was having are gone. They, they, they say it's an actual miracle. Uh, Kim, too, as she's got problems with her pet dog. And uh, I, I'm sorry, I can't read my handwriting there. Um, Mike and Debbie out in Cal uh, Los Alamos have both got COVID, and Debbie has been in the ICU. But it was looking more favorable today. And this morning he said they may release her. I don't know if that happened. I don't have the email in front of me, and I haven't had time to check. But we want to keep them in prayer. And then Scott and Jane, who are in Colorado, also have COVID. And Scott apparently has it pretty bad. And then Erin works for 3M, and she works from home. And she's applied for a religious exemption, and she's not really sure what they're going to do. But uh, uh, you would think working from home, it wouldn't be a problem. But apparently. Uh, uh, we need to pray about that. And then Suzanne Walker, I thought it was her, but I just got an email, and I think she was talking about her friend has an abscessed tooth, which is all swelled up. And so uh, uh, we need prayer about that. And then Burke was in the hospital a day ago, and he had his surgery on his melanoma, and he uh, this morning was waiting to make sure his blood circulation was okay. It's okay. And so they released him, and he is at home, and he's got to keep it up. So uh, Burke is doing fine. And then uh, Brian, that young man that was here last week that I talked about, he got COVID. And so um, he, uh, he, he's not going to be a class tonight. He wanted to be here, but he can't. And let's see here. Um, Graham over in Scotland just had a grandbaby. And they were very concerned about it for the first 24 hours, but everything is fine. And so they've named the baby Nathan, which means gift. And so, uh, anyway, uh, we want to thank the Lord and pray about these other things. And so we'll do that right now. Heavenly Father, lots of, lots of things going on, Lord. And you know all of the stresses that these people are facing, whether it's physical or, 
or uh, uh, because of other people, that they're worried about them, etc. Lord, you know all of these things. You know the difficulties that are presented to you. And so we would ask that you would, if it's your will, to divinely heal each one of these people. And Lord, if that's not the case, that you would just get them through it and uh, help them to recover uh, in a normal manner and give the doctors and uh, specialists wisdom in these things. Help them to make the right decisions. And Lord, we put these things in your hands, knowing that you have a plan and a purpose for everything. And so uh, we can at least trust that, even in the difficult times. But these people have asked for relief, and so we're praying for it. And we've also uh, uh, been presented with a happy one, with the, the uh, baby being born in Scotland. And so we want to praise you for that and thank you for that. And Lord, so we lift these up to you, and we also lift up this class, ask that uh, it would be conducted properly and that it would not have any doctrinal errors. But if there are, that you would alert us to it so that we would not teach something that is incorrect and not in accord with what you would have us to know from your word. What a precious word it is, and we thank you for it, Lord. And we just praise praise you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, and then I want to say before we read this day in history, uh, today is the, let's see, the 28th of October. So that means that this Sunday will be a regular Sunday. You're being given 10 days notice on this. So there's no excuses. 10 days notice. This Sunday will be a regular Sunday. The following Sunday, which is 7 November, set your date and time now, kids. We want to go fall back one hour, which means that if you don't show up on time, you're going to be an hour late and you will be beaten with a wet noodle. So please be sure to be ready for changing your clock on the 7th of November, so that you're at church on time. And uh, so for now, we have, um, I just said it's the 28th of October, so we'll see what happened on this day in history in 28 October. Once again, I read these, and they're good. Sometimes they have a little bit of a reform uh, theology bent to them, and we kind of kind of overlook some of the things that they say, some of the uh, errors and thinking, but it's still a pretty good devotional. Here we go. Um, capital punishment was freely administered in 18th century England, which it should be. Um, Sarah Peters, a friend of John Wesley's who shared his commitment to evangelism, felt a burden for the prisoners in London's Newgate prison, especially those on death row. Yeah, it's good to evangelize them too. They don't have much time left. On October 9th, 1748, she and a Christian friend went to see a prisoner named John Lancaster. Who had requested a visit from them. They met that day in Lancaster's cell, along with six or seven others, also sentenced to death. As they sang a hymn together, read some scripture, and prayed, the prisoners were in tears, convicted of their need for God. Lancaster told her how, at one time, he had attended church daily, but then it drifted away. See, that's a problem. That's why we keep reminding people, you got to make sure you attend, listen online, read your Bible, commit to that every day, if not, you can, and you know what mom used to, uh, before I finish this, she used to, I don't know if she still does, but she'd volunteer down at the resurrection house for, she did that for years and years and she may still do it. But she said that one of the guys that came in that would be living on the streets was an ex airline pilot. You know, you never know what life is going to deal you. You can go from flying in airplanes to eating out a dumpster. So you got to, you, every day you have to renew yourself every day. Um, let's see here. Uh, 
He became friends with a young man who was a thief, and they had become partners in crime. Now he was in prison, sentenced to death for breaking into a home and stealing 19 yards of velvet. Well, that seems a little extreme. Death penalty for that, but... Okay, this experience made Sarah Peters determined to do whatever she could for these men in their final days. Sometimes alone and sometimes with one or two others, Sarah visited these men almost daily as their execution dates approached, deciding that it would be helpful to meet with each condemned prisoner individually to inquire about his spiritual condition. Sarah and her companions met first with John Lancaster. He lifted his eyes and his hands and after a moment said, I thank God, I do feel that he has forgiven me my sins. I do know it. They asked him how and when he first knew. He answered, I was in great fear and heaviness till the very first morning you came hither first. That morning I was in earnest prayer and just as St. Paul's clock struck five, the Lord poured into my soul such peace as I have never felt, so that I was scarce able to bear it. From that hour I have never been able to die. I have never been afraid to die, for I know and am sure, as soon as my soul departs from the body, the Lord Jesus will stand ready to carry it into glory. Six others told similar stories of how in the last days they had put their faith in Christ through the ministry of Sarah Peters. The night before their execution, they wanted to pray with Sarah one more time. She went to the prison at 10 p.m., but was not allowed to enter. The jailer did, however, allow six of the condemned men to spend their last night together in prayer in one cell. At 6 a.m. the next morning, Sarah Peters was admitted to the prison. As the cell opened, the six men were rejoicing about their happy night of fellowship. John Lancaster was the first to be called out to have his leg irons removed. As the guard pounded off the irons, Lancaster exclaimed, Blessed be the day I came into this place. Oh, what a glorious work hath the Lord carried out in my soul since I came hither. When the guards led the prisoners into the prison yard to go to the execution site, Lancaster saw faithful Sarah, kissed her, and said, I am going to paradise today, as you will follow me soon. As the men were getting into the cart that would carry them to their execution, Lancaster said to his fellow prisoners, Come, my dear friends, let us go joyfully, for the Lord is making ready to receive us into everlasting habitations. John Lancaster and his friends were executed on 28 October, 1748. Two days later, Sarah fell ill with fever. Her work with the prisoners completed, she contentedly praised God from her sickbed. Less than three weeks later, Sarah Peters followed the prisoners to the everlasting habitations. A reflection. God used Sarah's compassion in ways she might never have imagined. Do you think that God can use you in ways you have never imagined? Always be open to the opportunities God places before you and allow him to use you in new ways, his ways. And from Matthew 25, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in prison, and you visited me. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, I mean, the guy obviously understood. If I didn't come to Christ in the prison, I would have ended up dying eventually apart from Christ. So, yeah, you take what you get in life, and you make the, the right choice for Jesus, and things will work out. Great God. I know there are people out there that would dismiss that, but they don't understand grace if they don't understand that people can come to Christ in the last minutes of their life and be just as saved as a person that was saved as a young kid. Um, let's see here. We are in the book of Ephesians. 528? 528. 528. No, it's def definitely. No, not, we'll be in Ephesians 1028, never. Yeah. 
today's date. Oh, yeah, it's 1028-520. I thought you were saying verse 1028, which is, it, we'll never get to verse 1028 in Ephesians. No. Okay, 520, wherever you want to start, you I'll just start go right ahead. Head of the paragraph, uh, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing and her by uh, the washing with water through the word and to preserve her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless 28 in the same the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself it's close this one says so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies and then it's identical after that Okay, <laughs> there is debate as to what the word so is referring to. It says there, so husbands ought to love their own wives. How did yours begin? It says in the same way. Okay, in the husbands same way. Husbands ought to love their wives. Okay, so they've they paraphrased it and they've decided that it means in the same way. Okay, is it speaking of that which is before or that which follows? The answer is to that which is before. To understand, the entire thought must be presented, and uh, note the un underlining, or I will stress it here. Husbands, love your wives just as, here you go to stress, as Christ also loved the church, okay, and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, so that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish so husbands ought. So we'll go back and we'll read just those two thoughts. As Christ also loved the church, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. The intervening verses were an explanation of how Christ loved the church. And they were also an explanation of what the result of that love would be. With the example given, the admonition with its explanation then follows. Christ loved the church so much that he gave himself for her. You know, I was driving around, I think it was this morning, and I think it was on the way to the mall, and I was thinking of exactly this thought. What an amazing thing that Jesus did, that he would come and live I know when it was. It was after I was working on the Deuteronomy sermon, and that's why I was thinking of it, that he would come and he would do what he did for the people of the world. It shows you so much how much God loves the people of the world. And yes, he, you know, uh, Pharaoh, for example. Pharaoh, you know, I raised him up to show my holiness and to, you know, etc. Well, Pharaoh didn't respond to God the way that he could have. We all have our choices to make, but if he had responded favorably towards the Lord, the Lord would have forgiven him as well, okay? We can't look at the what Christ does, sending somebody to hell, or I should say God in general, that he would send somebody to hell and think that that is uncaring. It's not uncaring at all. The fact that he came and that he gave Christ for us shows that he is caring, but we all have our own choices to make. We all have our own things that we want to pursue in life. We all have the, the things that we want to run after. And the Lord understands that, or the Lord has given us free will, and we need to understand that our free will is what sends us to the place where we are going to go. 
our own free will either chooses Christ or rejects Christ. And we know that's true because Job was outside of the covenant people. He was about the time of Abraham. And there's no doubt in the world, if you follow through the book of Job and the words he says and their inclusion in the word of God, that Job, Job was a saved person. He was looking for the anticipation of the Messiah, which is all that is expected of anybody, whether it's Abraham, whether it's Enoch, whether it's, doesn't matter who it is. If you are anticipating the Messiah or on this side of the cross, if you believe in the work of the Messiah, that's what God wants for you. And that's why we send people out as missionaries. And as that lady went into a church, six people that were on their way to one place, and now they're in a different place because she was willing to open her mouth and speak. So we have to just think about that, the, the magnitude of what happened when God sent his son into the world for each one of us. It, it's it's simply beyond comprehension, and I can think about it, but I can never get the words to explain what I think in my head. It's just, it's too deep and too wonderful. Um, Christ loved the church so much that he gave himself for her. This is something one would do as if their own body. So the husband is to do for his wife, because the wife is truly one flesh with him. That's right from Genesis 2, right there. I mean, it's the very beginning of the uh, the thought of our relationship with the wife that we have. Genesis 2, and then it says right there in verse, uh, we'll just start in 21, and the Lord God caused, uh, I'll go back even to 20. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Now, obviously, the Lord set it up that way so that Adam would try to think the thing through. Oh, we got this dog and there's another dog for it. And we got this cat, and there's another cat for it. And there's nobody here for me. He probably was aware of the fact that he was alone. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And we just went through the verses in Deuteronomy about divorce, and how people say that Moses gave them license to divorce, and then you can't infer it from the way that it is worded. It was very specific wording. And even Jesus came and he said, the people asked him, you know, is it okay to divorce a woman for any and every reason? And Jesus goes, and he cites exactly the way that the wording is from Deuteronomy. It's not giving license to divorce. He's saying, if in fact you do divorce, you're causing her to commit adultery. And then Paul backs it up again as well. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So uh, we're, we are to, one, remain married, but two, we're to love our wife even as we love our own body because... The point is made in Genesis 2, and it's carried all the way through the scripture that you are one. Okay, so the pattern was set at the beginning, and it should naturally follow through in all subsequent humans. However, sin entered the world. With that came disharmony, dissatisfaction, and divorce. But this was not the original intent for a man and his spouse. We'll go to Matthew 19, which is probably what I cited in the sermon, although I don't remember which passage it was. And it says there in Matthew 19. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished saying these things, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. 
and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them. Then the Pharisees also came to him, testing him, saying, There it is, to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And if you follow that sermon that we did on those particular verses, you'll see that even the way that it's expressed by Moses is that the woman is caused to be defiled when she goes to another man. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her, who is divorced commits adultery because it's the woman that has become defiled through the separation. And his disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And then he went on and explained, okay, well, you know, do what you want with it, but this is what I'm telling you. And I'm the Lord that created all things. So he didn't actually say that, but that's I mean, Charlie Garrett's paraphrase. Yeah, because he is. All right. So um, spouse, and then we just read that, Matthew 19. So then we have, with the work of Christ complete, we are to consider our marriages as being under the original pattern which was intended by God. Men are to love their wives even as if the two are one, because they are one. It would be illogical to not protect oneself, and therefore he who loves his wife loves himself. That's Paul's words. Life application, if a man wishes to promote his own happiness in mo the most effectual way, he had better begin by showing kindness to his wife. And that's Albert Barnes' little thought on it. Obviously, Albert Barnes was a married man because anybody that isn't married wouldn't have known that. Okay, good job, Albert. Okay, so I don't think that's probably the only life application I've ever quoted somebody else instead of using my own words. I forgot I did go. that, but very well said. Albert Barnes, good job. I always, you know, when I'm doing the sermons on uh, Monday, I always am reading these things, and I'll read a commentary by somebody, and I'll think, I never would have thought of that. Not in a million years would I have thought what that person thought, but it's correct. You know, obviously, you'll read things, I never would have thought that, but it's obviously incorrect, especially like Cambridge. But I always stop, and I say, Lord, I can't wait to meet this guy. <laughs> it just... You know, I can't wait to talk to the people that came up with some of the insights that they've come up with. Just right out of the blue, they'll say something that, wow, wasn't that, wasn't that amazing? Uh, I'll, I'll, as long as there's name tags. Yeah, name it's tags. Old. Adam Clark, oh, I can't wait to thank him for some of his comments. And, you know, just wonderful thoughts these guys have. Just marvelous thoughts. So, anyway, um, uh, let's see here. Anything else? Not nah, 529. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. Okay, very close. This one says nourishes and cherishes it, but I guess nourish and feed are kind of the same. All right, let's see here. Paul, in support of his statements, you know, uh, Mom still never has not showed. showed. She's never showed. If she doesn't show up in the next few minutes, she's going to be in big trouble. I just... Well, it's, yeah, it's her birthday today. I mean, here, she, and she, I got no email. I got nothing from her saying she wouldn't be here, and I purposely not called her. 
I've not hinted that it's her birthday because I was going to... Wait a second. You, you didn't call her on your birthday? Uh, well, that was supposed to happen now, and she's still not here. She's going to be in big trouble with me. My son doesn't even call me no. on my birthday. What's well, that? that's her fault. If she didn't get a call because she can't show up at Bible class, boy, she is in trouble. Oh. Okay, 529. Paul, in support of his statement that husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, brings in an obvious matter. Unless mentally deranged, Paul's words, no one ever hated his own flesh. It is interesting that Paul uses the term flesh rather than body. His mind certainly hearkened back to Genesis 2.23, which we just read, which said, this is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. I won't read it again. So anyway, that's obviously what he was thinking of. Though the man and wife have separate bodies, they're one flesh. A man doesn't hate his own flesh, and the wife is his very flesh. Therefore, it is contrary to what is moral and biblically sound to hate one's own wife. To further explain, he next says that a man will nourish and cherish his own flesh. The word nourish is found only twice in the Bible, and both are in the book of Ephesians. It gives a sense of rearing up a child to maturity. In essence, it indicates from childhood to adulthood. This is how a man is to treat his wife. He is to care for her as their marriage moves from stage to stage. She is not to be loved while young and in her flower and then disregarded after her body has become aged and worn. One of the things that I always, it's almost shocking is when somebody says, oh, this is a picture of us when we were married and now they're 75, 80, 90 years old. And you look and you think, she was so beautiful or he was so handsome or and you look now and they're old and you know the idea is that i was married to this person that was once really beautiful and in my eyes this person is still very beautiful you just go through the years and you accept the changes in each other and the people that don't know those changes look back and it's like looking at a completely different person but they have grown with each other they've matured with each other and and life is just gone by for them and so i imagine if you went back and looked at a picture of me and hedico when we were married you'd say wow what a difference you know but she looks just as pretty to me today as she does the as the day that we got married so there you go with that um uh let's see here um and where was I? oh yeah 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 okay the word cherish is also rare it is found here and in 1 thessalonians 2 7 cherish is a good translation of it it originally came from the thought to keep warm. When it is cold out, we will protect ourselves with that which warms us. Maybe we will kindle a fire, make a cup of hot chocolate, and wrap up in something fuzzy. I would do none of those things. Yeah, I'm right. just giving you guys ideas if you're cold. Okay, this is what one would also do for his precious wife. He is to tend to her, cherishing her in a manner which will keep her safe, happy, and content. And once again, in order to show the basis for this treatment of our beauties, Paul returns to the antitype, Christ. He says that we are expected to do these things, and then he, his words, just as the Lord does the church. He again equates Christ's relationship to the church with a man's relationship to his wife. For us to act contrary to this in regards to our wife is to then show contempt of how the Lord has already set the pattern for us in his love of us. Christ has set the pattern. This is what he's done. This is what we are to follow up doing, in other words. So, life application. The Bible shows us clearly 
and precisely that men are to act properly towards their wives, caring for them and treating them in the same manner that Christ treats his church. When we fail to do this, our actions are certainly unacceptable in the eyes of the Lord. So there you go. And Hedico knows that I'm a grump 99% of the time. Once again, today I had just uh, my ears just been bothering me all day long and the dogs are barking and she probably thought I was mad at her about something because I wasn't saying anything, but I just wanted to just crawl into a pillow cover and hide. Anyway, so finally, when it was time to leave and come here, I was just so happy to get out of that house. And it's not her fault. You know, she gets a day off and the dogs are all riled up. When I'm there alone, those dogs don't make a peep all day long. It's just as quiet as it could be until it's time for me to take them out. And then they all go crazy for three minutes and they come back in and they go into their hole again and that's it now but we when, know who the alpha dog is oh yes yes but i gotta tell you what when when uh she's home those dogs never shut up and on a day like today with my ear bothering me oh, but i wasn't mad at her at all just just trying Our to dogs do the same thing oh they all got into a catatonic state when linda's gone yeah it's like you know today are the dogs even here i, I know like, that's me all day long they don't make a peep all day long nothing because but boys, we don't count. We don't count. That's right. They they love mom, though. That's a fact. And they're running around. They're trying to impress her, biting each other. And, oh, it's just crazy. Okay, 530. For we are members of his body. Yeah. That's it. This one says, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So let me see. A, what does it say down here? Yeah, the NU text omits the rest of this verse. So your text omits. And that's why you, listen. I tell people this all the time. I'm going to say it again because, you know, it's been a while since I said it. I try to say it like every day, but I haven't said it in a while. Is that if you're going to buy a Bible, try to buy one that has footnotes. Mm. Okay, that'll tell you why certain things are happening. I don't care about commentaries. You know, life application Bibles that have got the commentaries on the bottom, you get this much commentary for an entire page. It's not worth it. The guy just wrote something just to make you feel good and to make a lot of money off of selling a life application Bible. But you're not getting a sound commentary on this much commentary on 25 verses is impossible, okay? But footnotes always give you the information. And if you want to pursue what is going on in the Bible, you know, people will email me and they'll say, well, why is this this way in this Bible? I don't understand that. If they look at the footnotes, it's usually going to be answered for them right there. Okay. Uh, mine does not have a note down here saying we have omitted that. Yeah, you know, and it's funny that they wouldn't do it because, well, that's a NIV Life right. Application Bible. So, um, but yeah, they uh, uh, that footnotes will often tell you all kinds of good stuff. I'm gonna let me see if they do it here with. Um, uh, I'm just gonna take you to. I know I use this example from time to time, but it's a good example. So I'm gonna take you to Psalm 22, and we'll see if they do it in this one. I don't need it because I've read enough Bibles with footnotes to know what is going on there. But let, yeah, this is, it does say it here. This is just an easy one for you to, uh, before we evaluate the verse we're looking at. Okay, in Psalm 22, uh, we're going to go to Psalm 22, verse 16. And it says, therefore, dogs have surrounded me. This is Christ on the cross, okay? The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands, and my feet. And that you can find the, you know, the uh, fulfillment of that in Matthew 27, Mark 15, and Mark uh, 20, okay? So, 
that's fine. Those are little notes that give you internal references. The ones that have the notes right by the verse, that gives you an internal reference for the Bible. But at the bottom, you'll have notes that say things, the, the mechanics of what is going on. I'll read it again. It says, they pierced my hands and my feet. And by the word pierced, it has a little thing saying, look at the footnotes. So you go down to the footnote, and it says, following some Hebrew manuscripts. And the Septuagint, the Syriac, the Vulgate. But the Masoretic text says something different. It doesn't say they pierced my hands and my feet. The Masoretic text, which was the Hebrew text, the oldest Hebrew text for a long, long time, uh, the oldest uh, uh, manuscript that they had of it dated to about A.D. 1030. But it was the oldest one known at the time, and it's the one that the Bible is basically translated from, the Masoretic text. And a Masoret is a person that counts. They're counters. They would count how many letters from here to here, how many words in this scroll. And so when they made a new scroll, they'd count all of that. And if there were any errors, they'd throw the scroll away. Okay. But they intentionally changed some things in the Masoretic text. This is the text that the Hebrew, the Jewish people, after the time of Christ, have used. Okay. So the Masoretic text doesn't say they pierced my hands and my feet. It says, like a lion, my hands and my feet. Well, it doesn't make any sense, okay? But that's what they have in there. And it's a very close uh, change in the Hebrew. I mean, it's a very small change from they pierced my hands and my feet to like a lion, my hand and my feet, okay? But it's the only text that says that. All the other texts, which are uh, some Hebrew, Hebrew manuscripts, which are, you know, just different manuscripts, say they pierced my hands and my feet. The Septuagint, which is, what is the Septuagint? Greek translation. That's right, the translation of the 70, and it predates Jesus by 250 years. It's the Greek translation done in Alexandria, uh, uh, Egypt, thank you, about 200, 250 years before Christ. That also says, they pierced my hands and my feet. The Syriac, which is another ancient witness, a translation of the Bible, is says, they pierced my hands and my feet. And... The Latin Vulgate says they pierced my hands and my feet. Why is that important? Is because the Latin Vulgate goes way, way back to about 300 AD, way before the Masoretic text. And guess what happened when Jerome translated the Latin Vulgate? Did he translate it from Latin to Latin? No, no he translated it from Hebrew to Latin. He used a Hebrew text which went back at least 300 AD and probably well before that, and he translated it, and it says, they pierced my hands and my feet. So you have all of these things, and guess what? They found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and what did the Dead Sea Scrolls say? My hands and my hand. They pierced my hands and my feet. So we know that the Masoretic text was corrupted, okay? They purposefully changed it to hide Jesus, and they've done this in Isaiah 53. They've done it in a couple other places as well. And so when you read down at the bottom, the footnotes, you'll often get mechanical information that will help you to decide what do you think is correct and why. And so this one, okay, I'm, I, I'm not going to read you the verse, but it says here on this verse, 28.8, following the Masoretic text and Targums. Targums are commentaries on the, uh, you know, uh, uh, Hebrew writings, okay? Uh, the Septuagint, Syriac, and Vulgate read something different. Okay, so they decided in this case to follow the Masoretic text in the Targums and not to follow the Septuagint, the Syriac, and the Vulgate. Okay, why they did that, they would have to explain why. So, and another translation may say something different. So if he reads his and I read mine, it may not say the same thing. 
if you don't look at the footnotes, you're not going to know why it's different. So that's his NIV is based on the NU text, okay? And so that's why it leaves off a couple of the words from the verse we're in right now. Whereas this one follows the, the NU is an Alexandrian text. It comes from the Alexandrian tradition, which means Egypt. Whereas this is based on the Byzantine text, which is obviously the other side of the, uh, the empire at the time, okay? And then from there, they got a guy named Erasmus came together. I can't remember the year forgive me. Anyway, Erasmus, I think his name was Desiderius Erasmus, got all of these texts that he had, and he went through all of them, and he made what's known as the received text, okay? And so it, he took all of this information, and he said, this is what I think the Bible is being presented, just like they would with a, a thing here, but he did it in the Greek. So they call that the received text, okay? A lot of people take, and the reason why it's called the received, I believe, I could be wrong on this, but I think it's because when it was completed, they stamped it received. In other words, this is the official text received from Erasmus, okay? But people say the received, and they will tell you that it's a received text because it was received from God. No, it wasn't. It was compiled by Erasmus. Anyway, so you get all kinds of people with all kinds of agendas, and you have to kind of search things out. I won't get into that right now because I'm, I'm not snuffed up on it and I don't want to give you the wrong information. But um, his says something a little different. Verse 30 here says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And then because his is different, I can read why it's different. They used one text. This one uses another. Okay. So um, when you see these differences in source texts, you will find that there are a lot of differences. I mean, there are just all kinds of differences. And the main reason why, before we go on again, the main reason why there's so many different differences is because the Hebrew was done in one certain way. They had people that had very formal writing style. It was very precise, and they would do it the same way. They, they, you know, they used special parchment for the Bible, and they would have people that were trained for years and years to, to properly write out the Hebrew and to know how to not make errors their eyes would fix on something. And then they had certain traditions, which, you know, had nothing to do with translation, but they would have traditions like every time the name uh, Yahweh or Jehovah would come up, they would stop and they'd wash their hands or something. They, so they, they followed these very precise ways of doing things. And they made a very few number of translations, okay? Or I should say uh, manuscripts. There weren't a lot of them. On the other hand, the Greek New Testament follows a completely different process is that here we have the truth of God in Christ. We want to get this out to as many people as possible. And they would just hire scribes, and scribes would just make copy after copy after copy. Okay, And there were a lot of errors when they did that. And the reason why is because this guy would be translating, he'd be tired, and he wouldn't be following these precise translational or you know, uh, what you, scribal processes that the Hebrews would. They would. And so your eyes, you'll look up and you'll see the word of, uh, we'll say of him, and so the rest of the sentence you would write, okay? Well, there might say of him here, and it might say it here, and it might say it over here. And your eyes look at the wrong place, and so you skip or you insert something that because your eyes are just looking. They, they know every type of error a person can make in translating a Bible. They know every, in this one, they know that it was a different paragraph. In this one, he, his eyes went up to a different line in there. They, these people, this is all they do with their lives is study how errors come into text like this. But the sense of the Greek is that there are just thousands and thousands of copies out there. 
and they can determine based on the number of errors which one is actually the correct manuscript. It's a marvelous thing that they could do. The Hebrew is different. You can tell the errors based on the few manuscripts, whereas the Greek, you can tell the errors based on the multitude of manuscripts. And so one way or another, they're very sure about the differences, which ones are incorrect and which ones are correct. And then from there, even if there are differences, there are none. There, there is nothing missing in any of the major doctrines in any of the texts. The blood atonement of Christ, that Christ died, you know, everything. All the major doctrines are there in every text. There's nothing missing where you would say, well, that one, you know, you'll have King James only people say, well, that one takes out the blood in this verse. Well, guess what? It adds the blood in in this verse, and it's not in yours. The blood atonement is in both manuscripts, okay? So uh, I wouldn't worry about that. It, it's just something that if you are concerned about textual differences and textual changes, then take a course on it. And you can take courses for free from college. You just go to the college and say, I want to uh, um, audit a course on, you know, um, textual differences. And they'll say, okay. And then they'll give you the course material and you don't get credit for it. But it's a great, great way to learn so that you are aware of what is going on in the Bible, if that concerns you. It shouldn't concern you. And you can find a lot of that on a search on the internet too. But uh, it, to take a course where somebody's really spent their life doing that, it's worth your time. Did you have a question? How did they change Isaiah 53? Okay, Isaiah 53, let me take you there because you asked, and then we'll get back into Ephesians. Um, I'll, While uh, you're looking for that, let me just yes. say something. What's interesting about the difference in styles, and maybe the motivation why there's so many of the New Testament, so few of the Old, is the fact that uh, Israel, the Jews, have never been like evangelizing people. Like, oh, right. Become a, a Jew. It was like, you know, no, we're in a family, we have lots, we're together. You can come in, but, you know, we're not... Right, we're not dragging you, and we're just like keeping yep. a distance. You're from no no tribe, but so that's that that's why there's <laughs> absolutely right. Good good point. Okay, uh, Isaiah fifty three eleven. I'll start in ten. It says, "Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand." Verse eleven. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. That's all it says. But in the, that's the Masoretic text, okay, and the Targums, and the Vulgate. But the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint, which both predate the coming of Christ, read, from the labor of his soul, he shall see light. Now, either somebody inserted that in there, or somebody took it out of there, okay? From the labor of his soul, he shall see light. In other words, the resurrection. And so you have to decide which one is correct. Now, obviously, the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of them were uh, trash copies. They were things, oh, there's an error on this, and so we're just going to file it over here. Okay, we don't want to destroy it, but we're going to file it over here. Some of them are no trash copies. They were very, you know, like the Great Isaiah Scroll that's on display in Israel. And it's uh, just a magnificent thing. The whole scroll of Isaiah is there, okay? But um, uh, you have to say to yourself, which one is correct? He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied, or from the labor of his soul he shall see light. Which one is correct and why? And so, like I said, if you want to go with the Masoretic tradition, which the oldest documents are about 1030 A.D., and then the Targum, which is the commentaries on that, and the Vulgate, which comes out of an original Hebrew or an older Hebrew manuscript about 300 A.D. or before, Great, but the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
and the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, both say, from the labor of his soul he shall see light. Okay, I would argue that that is correct, because it is showing the resurrection in one of the most important passages in all of Scripture, okay? But it doesn't mean I'm right. It's just that I favor that, because I favor seeing the resurrection in Isaiah 53. Anyway, but either way, one says one thing, one says the other. There you go. That's the difference. Okay, and there are not a lot of them. You go through the Old Testament, you look at the footnotes, there are not a lot of differences. It's not like the New Testament where you'll get a lot of them, okay? So, well, too, back when the scrolls were, were the means of, of communication and, and rolling, they, I mean, the counting of the letters was so important. So was, important. Every when, single letter. They would roll the scroll around. If a fly or a gnat got caught on something, it could produce Blotch. a dot. That's right. And a dot means something in the Hebrew alphabet. Yeah. It could change the entire wording. Absolutely. Or, or, or anything like that. So the counting was... Very, very careful with how they did that. Keep that from showing up. That's right. It was a very precise way of, of doing manuscripts. And like I say, there, one is not better than the other. You would think, oh, this is better because it's... No, it's not... Because, like I said, you can have lots of errors in the Greek. I, I've showed this before. I hate to repeat myself, and we'll get back into this verse in one second. But you weren't here when I, I show people this. It's a very easy way of showing how errors can actually tell you what is correct. Okay? I, some, I, what does that say? What does that say? Can you read that? My handwriting is terrible, but what does it say? I owe you a million dollars. I owe you a million dollars. Now, this time, I'm going to say here. Okay. Same thing. We'll just go on. What does it say? I owe you a million dollars. You can, right. you know that this is an error, and you know that's an, that's an, an error. And when you get 5,296 Greek manuscripts, and they have a couple little things like this, and this one has a, a W here, and this one has an X here, and you know that the word is O because you want your million dollars, it's very easy to find which one is correct. And that's how they do this. They, they don't just look at one manuscript and they say, oh, well, that says this and that's it. They go through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts and they line them all up and they say, we know how this error got in here. We know how that word ended up down in this paragraph. They know. They, this, these people, you watch, go onto YouTube and just type in Bible translators um analysis or something like that and watch an hour or two video on some of these people that are so intelligent about that field they might not be able to make breakfast but those guys know how i'm telling you it is amazing how their minds think and they can they can assure you that what you have in your hand is the word of god even with these little differences they know they absolutely know that and this is what they spend their lives doing so yeah absolutely yeah. you know that's right and yeah the hebrew doesn't have vowels there are no vowels in hebrew it's a consonantal language and so when you're looking at the hebrew letters you just have to know the structure of it and when you know the structure you know how to pronounce that word with the vowels in it in modern hebrew what he was saying is you have little dots around the thing and that'll tell you how to pronounce it because you know but once you get older, they don't use the dots anymore. They just, you look at a billboard in Israel, it won't have any of those dots. It's only for a learning tool. And that's the same thing in Japan, where Hidako is from. They've got these Chinese characters, which are very complicated when you look at them. They're, it's just like a, a picture of something. 
Well, what they would do for the children in Japan is they would take the easier alphabet, like, well, it's like an ABC alphabet. It's very simple, just sounds, A-E-U-A-O, and they'll put that right next to the Chinese character. And so they will learn how to pronounce this based on this different alphabet. And then when you get older, you don't need that anymore. But they would take the hiragana and put it next to the kanji, and that way you can learn to read properly, and then you don't need any more. And that's the same thing. Modern Hebrew, you'll see all these dots around it. Those are not in the Hebrew, okay? But they are a learning tool. I mean, they're not in the Hebrew of these old texts, but they are a learning tool for you to understand. However, what he said is true. If you've got a text and you've got this letter here, and you've got this letter here, they look very much the same. And if somebody's writing really quickly, you know, and you get a little smudge right here, all of a sudden, this calf looks like a bait, okay? So, and there's several, there's one that's a rash, and this is a dalit, okay? They look very similar. Well, if somebody isn't writing very well, or they're writing really quickly, like we do in English, you wouldn't be able to tell, is it, does it say rodanim or dodanim? And that's why you'll see the same name in the Bible will say dodanim somewhere and rodanim somewhere else, is because they just wrote quickly or somebody couldn't read it when they translated it, whatever. Those are small things that, that, anyway, they want to be precise, but you can see how errors can creep in. All right. Anyway, let's get back to uh, Ephesians. We are in verse uh, 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 30. Uh, 30. Okay. Again, as cited in the previous verse, this harkens back to Genesis chapter 2. The woman was taken from the side of Adam. She was fashioned from who he already was rather than being fashioned from the earth as Adam was. In a figurative way, the church sprang from the side of Christ as well. Thus, the personal nature of Eve being truly a part of Adam is repeated in the personal nature of our being so intimately connected to Christ. In this most intimate union, Paul says that we are, we are members of his body. Our spiritual connection to Christ is so tied up in the work of the Lord that we are directly connected to him, even as being of his flesh and of his bones. That's the part that isn't in his Bible, but it is in this one. Nothing could be more personal than this marvelous union to God through Christ. The pattern was set in Adam and Eve, and it follows through to us. Okay, very intimate. Um, you will often hear somebody say in a sermon, and I completely agree with the premise, is that when God looks at you, he does not see you. He sees Christ, okay? Because if he saw you as you are right now, he couldn't look at you, all right? But with Christ's covering, because we are in Christ, it's that intimate of a union. All that God will see of us is his son, the perfection of his son. Otherwise, like I said, he wouldn't be seeing us at all. We would not stand in the presence of a holy God as we are. And that's why Paul goes into great lengths in 1 Corinthians 15 to say that the corruptible cannot inherit the incorruptible, okay? Because we need to be translated into his image fully in order to come into the presence of God. But right now, when, he, when God considers us, he considers us because of Christ. And it's another really good reason why you could never lose your salvation. If you are in Christ, how are you going to come out of Christ? You have become a part of Christ. And unlike us who divorce our wives for any and every reason, Christ will never do that with us. He has made the commitment 
He died in fulfillment of that commitment, and he will never reject the people that come to him. Anyway, the lesson Paul is giving, though, needs to be remembered. Men are to love their wives as their own body, just as Christ loves his own body. You called on Christ. He saved you. He sealed you with his spirit. He will never, never forsake you. He will never leave you. People that teach otherwise, I feel bad for them. I feel bad for the people that listen to people that say you can lose your salvation. It, 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 what bondage you're putting people in. It, I just, I feel so bad that people have that in their heads that they can't understand. My friend emailed me today and he says, Charlie, you always say the same thing and I can't remember the words. He said, yeah, grace is getting what you don't deserve. And you say, mercy, what did, explain it. It's mercy is not getting what you do deserve. It's two sides of the same coin. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And the example I gave him was that today it rained. And there's a lot of people out there that do not deserve God's favor. All of us. But, you know, from my perspective, there's a lot of people out there that didn't deserve that rain. And my answer to him in the email was, I hope they got a bar of soap and washed up while they were out there because they need to be cleaned up. But they got the same rain that I did. I'm in Christ and they're not. Great. Okay. And then mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And I said, thank goodness, I, and then I put in parentheses, we, we really received God's mercy when he saved us instead of sending us to hell, because that's what we deserve. Every person that is on this planet deserves hell. Jesus Christ gives us mercy, he, or God through Christ gives us mercy. So it, it's a wonderful thing to remember, and I'll read it again. The lesson is, Paul is giving us needs to be remembered. Men are to love their wives as their own bodies just as Christ loves his own body. He loves us. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Life application. The patterns of the Bible are repeated to help us understand deeper spiritual truths. Things which are recorded in the Bible, which happened in the stream of time, in the physical creation, are used to point us to these spiritual truths. As you read the Bible, keep this in mind, and it will help open up seemingly obscure and odd passages to a fuller appreciation for the work of God in Christ. He just keeps, and it, it says it explicitly. He tells us that in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says it in 3.1, I'm sorry, 3.15, and uh, uh, 3.1, anyway, he says um, 3.15. Uh, let me take you there. He says, um, that which has been will be again. That which has been done will be done again. And there is nothing new under the sun. That's right. And so let me take you there really quickly because he says it again a second time. And isn't it funny that my brain, oh, I'm going the wrong way, Charlie. Always helps to, Song of Solomon comes after that. Okay, and then we'll go, all right, Ecclesiastes. And I want to make sure I quoted that properly for you. It says there in 3.15, that, that which is has already been. And what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. And then in uh, where does he say this again? I think it's in chapter 9. Hang on a second here. Um, why can't I remember? He says it twice. Burke's not here. Burke's not here, and he'd remember. You know, I, I ought to remember this and not... Uh, uh, one nine is it? One nine? Yeah, one nine. Okay, one nine. I was thinking of nine one. One nine and three fifteen. One nine says, that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. Everything repeats, and especially in his word. God does something, and then he takes the same thing, and he does it again. 
And so you can make the connection between the physical and the spiritual. He gives you the story of Jacob and Esau, you know, fighting over a bowl of red soup for a reason, or actually not fighting over it, but, you know, one of them wanting it and him, you know, uh, he does that for a reason, okay? They're twins for a reason. The baby comes out of the womb with his hand on his brother's heel for a reason. Every single one of those things looks to something that happened in Christ. Every one of them. There's nothing in the word that doesn't come into its, you know, its fuller and final picture in Christ. Okay, that which has been done will be done again. So that's, he's doing that so that we can think things through properly. And if we're willing to stop and think things through. Okay, so uh, yes, fuller appreciation for the work of Christ, and we're in 531. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. Two will become one flesh. Okay, does that, is that in a different font or anything in yours? Um, no, but there is a uh, footnote. Okay. Be B. I mean, it's Genesis 2.24, and uh, it is um, using quotation Okay, well, yes. okay, you so go. you'll get you'll get different, the reason why I say this, because different translators will take Old Testament passages and they'll do them differently. Some of them will take an Old Testament passage and they'll put it in quotes. Some of them, like I think it's the NASB or maybe the newer NAS, will take it and put it all in capital. And that way you know that it's a quote from the Old Testament. This one here, instead of using... If you look in the New King James Version, when they insert a word, they put it in italics, right? Okay, so if you go, let me, um, it'll say um, where. Uh, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Well, the word you isn't there, and they inserted it. So to let you know that they are not trying to change the word of God, but help you interpret it, they put the word you in italics, okay? Well, they have a font which is very similar to italics called oblique. And when they use oblique in the New King James Version, it's saying that this is a quote from the Old Testament. So just depending on what translation you're using, some will put it in quotes, some will put it in all caps, some will put it in boldface, or some will put it in oblique. But when you see that, that is simply a quote from the Old Testament. So just depends on which translator. They all have their own style. You know, they decide it for their own reasons. And usually, not always, but if you go to the beginning, the very beginning of the Bible, it's called a, anybody begins with P and ends with preface. Anybody? Preface. Okay, you go to the preface. This one may not have it. Okay, I don't, they, um, they do. They've got a very short one. They've got a very short one for th- this Bible. Now, I've got one over there that I used for years, and it had a great preface. Man, it told everything about why they did it. Why do we use the capital in the name of God? Why do we do this? Why? Man, they told you every decision they made. And so when you, before you read your new Bible translation, which you're going to have one in 154 days, because you're going to finish the Bible translation you're reading now, you're going to go and buy a different version. Read the preface first, and it'll tell you all kinds of information as to why they made the translation, how they made the translation, the source text they use, the way that they laid it out. Read the preface. It's, it may seem boring to you, but it's going to help you understand why what you're reading is doing what it's doing. And plus, you know, it, it sometimes it'll give you insights that you didn't even think were possible. So if you have a preface in your Bible, read that preface, okay? Um, So we'll go on. Um, Let's see here. We're in 531. Paul is using 
the previous example of husbands loving their wives from verses 28 and 29 to make a point. From the thought of those verses, he said, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. This is speaking of Christ. The words explain where Paul is going with verses 28 and 29. He is showing that the original giving of Eve to Adam was to be taken in type and picture of what would come about in Christ. This will be made explicit in the, in the verse to come. For now, he cites the substance of Genesis 2, verse 24, which explains the union between a man and a woman. Eve was taken from Adam's side. Adam made a proclamation concerning the nature of the woman. And from this came the resulting explanation. Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then verse 224 comes in. So Paul says, for this reason, that's Paul's words. It means based on the intimate nature of what occurred, as well as the fact that the two bear one and the same nature, Paul goes on, a man shall leave his father and his mother. The union of a man to a woman is to mean a new beginning for the man. This, in type, is a picture of Christ. He left the realm of his heavenly father and came to dwell among humanity. In doing so, the intent was that he would be joined to his, capital, wife. Man leaves his father and his mother and starts a new life together with his bride. Christ likewise came to join with his bride, meaning the church. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Okay, because in the Old Testament, God, the Lord, is married to Israel. Okay, we went through that in that uh, divorce sermon where, you know, where is your certificate of divorce? Okay, well, people say that God divorced Israel, and so now the church is the bride of Christ. They are missing the significance of what the marriage means in the Bible. It doesn't mean that we're going to be standing literally next to Christ while he's got on his royal robes and we've got white garments on next to him, and we're all going to be a wife married to him. The symbolism of the marriage means that we are in a marriage union contract. Just because we are in that contract does not mean that Israel is not in a marriage union contract with Christ, okay? Israel is he never divorced them. That's very clear from Isaiah and the other passages that we went through in that sermon. But people say, oh, well, we're the bride of Christ and therefore God has divorced Israel. That is an error in thinking about what is being conveyed in the Bible. This is typology. Okay, God uses metaphor. He uses parallelism. He uses all kinds of instructional tools for us. It is an error in thinking that just because we are the bride of Christ, that Israel is not in a covenant union with God also, okay, that's an important thing to remember. If you don't understand that, go watch that sermon. It's only a couple sermons ago from Deuteronomy, and it, it, it includes the word divorce. I can't remember the title of it right now, but you will understand what is going on, the typology of what is going on. God has not divorced Israel, okay? God is waiting for Israel to grow up and to call on him, and then that, that contract will be complete in them, okay? How do we know that? Who is the new covenant made with? I, I'm sure I'm going to say it again in this sermon. I say it in almost every Deuteronomy sermon. It's in Jeremiah 31, 31. Who, do, who is the new covenant made with? The house of Judah and the house of Israel. Okay, it's not with Gentiles. It's with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay, and because that is so, then we are obviously, as Gentiles, what? 
We are brought into, we are grafted in, we are brought into the commonwealth of Israel, okay? We didn't replace Israel, we are brought into the commonwealth of Israel, okay? We're Gentiles, we are not the house of Judah, and we are not the house of Israel. So this is what's important to understand about what's going on with that. But we get the same type of typology that's going on right here with the uh, uh, verse from Ephesians. Uh, so here we go. This in type is a picture of Christ. He left the heavenly realm of his father and came to dwell among humanity. In doing so, the intent was that he would be joined to his wife. Man leaves his father and his mother and starts a new life together with his bride. Christ likewise came to join with his bride, meaning the church. The word be joined is a compound verb which denotes the most intimate union. That is Vincent's word studies analysis of that. It is the most intimate union. It is the union of Christ and his church that the two shall become one flesh. This means one in nature and one in goal based on this most intimate union which has been established. We are given a spiritual nature instead of our carnal human nature. We are to direct our lives to this nature as we await the coming of our Lord to consummate the marriage. This nature came from the pierced side of Christ, just as the nature of Eve came from the rib inside of Adam. Although it was unknown at the time of the writing of the Genesis account, all of this was set up at the very beginning to show us what God would do in Christ. It is from the very first moments of man's existence, and even before the fall of man, that the plan was laid out and the type and picture of what would occur was given. Life application. If we ever have doubts about what we are, where we are going, or if we come to the point where we think that control has been lost and things are just too much to face, all we need to do is contemplate the ramifications of this passage right here from the book of Ephesians. Christ has called us out to be his bride. It is something that was planned from the very beginning of time. Nothing is out of control. Everything is being worked towards a marvelous end. Okay, now, right now, I get lots of emails and letters and things from people that, oh, these are such trying times. I'm in so much distress. And, you know, what's going to happen? I understand that. But, you know, my thought is, and I usually don't say something like this to people directly. I kind of try to direct them back to the word. But guess what? People since the very first believers in Christ have been crucified, they've been tortured, they've been martyred. You think of the Armenians. If you, ever, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go in and type Armenian genocide into your search bar on the internet, and you'll get all kinds of pictures. People lined up by the Ottoman Turks for miles hung on crosses. They didn't have a very good day that day, I can tell you. So if you think that because you're not going to have Christmas dinner with your family this year, it's a bad thing. I'm sorry, a lot of people have had a lot worse than you, okay? We have to take everything in the proper perspective, is that we are living a life that is not our home. We have a guarantee that will take us to a place way, way better than this. And I don't care how bad it gets. I don't care how bad it gets in the days and years ahead in this country or anywhere else in the world. It is nothing compared to what is coming in Christ. And so if you can just keep that perspective, what he is telling us right now, it was planned from the very beginning before anything 
came into existence in the outward world, outside of the Garden of Eden. He knew that Adam would fall, and he knew that, that we would need a Redeemer. And so he used the creation of Adam and then the taking of a rib out of the side of Adam to create the woman as a picture of what he was going to do in Christ. Everything's okay. Everything's okay. And if we're being tacked to a wooden cross someday and hung up with a bunch of other Christians because of our faith, we ought to be saying, thank God we're going to be out of here and we're going to be with Jesus pretty soon. As painful as it is, as terrifying as it is, it's nothing. It's just a step. And we're all going to die anyway. I don't care if you think you're not going to die. We're all going to die unless the Lord comes at the rapture. We might die by getting run over. We might die by, you know, just going to bed and not waking up. We don't know. So why worry about those things? Keep your eyes on the prize. That's what you need to do, especially in this time where things are really getting bad in the world. It's just a blip. It's frustrating. It's maddening. But at the same time, it's just a blip. Hang on to the promises of Christ because as it says here, everything is being worked out towards a marvelous end. Everything. Everything will be fine. I understand the stress of the moment, but don't let it get you down, okay? 532. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Okay. Same thing here. He says, I speak concerning the Christ and the church, but same thing. Okay, 532. According to Vincent's word studies, the word great acts as a predicate, not as an attribute. We'll read it again. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Vincent says it acts as a predicate, not an attribute. Therefore, this is correctly rendered. This mystery is great. Instead of, how did it say here? Um, this is a great mystery. Vincent's word study says it should properly read, this mystery is great. Paul is telling us that what was just said about the man leaving his father and mother and being joined to the woman is a type and a picture of what God would do in Christ with his church. Paul calls this a mystery because it is something that had never, never been revealed before, but which was now being revealed by him. The symbolism of the Lord being wedded to his people does run through the Old Testament, but it was always thought to apply only to Israel, okay? Now, before we go on, I'm sure I cite it in the divorce sermon, but I can also tell you right now that even though it was a mystery, even though, I'll read that again, the symbolism of the Lord being wedded to his people does run through the Old Testament, but it was always thought to apply only to Israel. The only reason why it was only thought to apply only to Israel is because Israel did not want it to apply to anybody else. You go to the book of Isaiah, and he's very clear. It's too small of a thing to re redeem the, you know, the whatever, the lost of Jacob or however he terms it. He says, I will also include the Gentiles in this. I think that's a 49, it might be 46. We'll look really quickly. Which would not make them happy. It wouldn't make Why them happy. And, yeah, like exactly. Yeah. So it's, um, absolutely. Let's see if we can find this here. Um, I may not find it and that's okay. Um, uh, 46 light to the gentiles i know it's right here somewhere i mean it's just right in front of me and it says uh, merchandise is established one other god um maker who's uh, okay i'm not going to find it i'm not going to spend all day on it but um he's very clear he says it twice in isaiah that he was going to be include the gentiles in what he was doing okay let me go to chapter 49 and we'll see if we can find it there and if not then i'll be done um let's see here uh some gather to him glories okay yeah here it is 
49.6. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant, speaking of the Christ, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. He's not saying he's not going to do that. He says it's too small of a thing to only do that. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you, the Messiah, should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So there you go. The only reason why people didn't see it is because they weren't looking, because the Lord told them in advance what was coming, even in the law of Moses and the song of Moses, uh, Deuteronomy 32, I think. He says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, right there. And Paul even uses that in the New Testament to show us that the Gentiles are included in what God was doing, even from the time of the law of Moses. So we just, we have now, it's so easy for us to say, oh, look, there it says that. But when you're looking forward, you're not thinking that way, okay? Hindsight is twenty twenty. We have the hindsight, and so we can see it. But they were not looking for the inclusion of the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, the book of Acts clearly shows that when Paul, uh, he says, and Paul is right there, he says, go to the Gentiles. And what did they all do? They went ballistic, started throwing sand up in the air and pulling out their hair and going crazy. Gentiles? No way, Jose. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, chosen for what? So, uh, e even in the book of Acts, you can see the Jews just did not understand it. And to this day, they just don't understand it. Not all Jews. I'm talking about the, the people as a whole, the nation of Israel. Okay, so um, let's see here. We're in 532. Um, this mystery is great. Paul is telling us what was just said about the man leaving his father and mother and being joined to the woman is a type and a picture of what God would do with Christ and the church. Paul calls this a mystery because it is something that had never been revealed before, but which was now being revealed by him. The symbolism of the Lord being wedded to his people, here's where I left off, does run through the Old Testament, but it always was thought to apply only to Israel. However, the mystery now revealed shows that the intent all along was that the marriage typology actually was pointing to God's people. Brought near to him, through the person and through the work of Jesus Christ. Having said that, Paul's note about the greatness of the mystery shows that we can only understand a portion of what is being presented. In reality, until the consummation of the marriage, we can only speculate as to what lies ahead. However, it does lie ahead, and therefore we should be in eager anticipation of it, and we should be continuously preparing ourselves for that day. Oh, you see, that's the thing. It's not like this is something that, oh, God has promised, and we just kind of let it sink out of our minds when we get up and get about the day. It is something that God has promised, and we're supposed to keep it at the forefront of our minds throughout the day. God wants me to do something with this life. He wants me to be productive in Christ. He wants me to be intimate with him, to get closer to him. And like I said, week after week, how are you going to do that? Unless you know the word, you can't do it. Unless you're fellowshipping with other believers, you're not fellowshipping with other believers. Unless you're praising God, you're not praising God. Everything that we do is something, and what we should do is direct our thoughts and our hearts and our minds and every part of who we are towards the Lord. And I know that's hard, but it can be done. You can be fixing a, be a plumber fixing a pipe under a house with rats crawling around you, and you can say, Lord, I love you. I'm so glad I'm not going to be here someday, right? It doesn't matter what you're doing. Anything can be something that you can talk to the Lord about. 
anything. Okay, so it does lie ahead, and therefore we should be in eager anticipation of it, and we should be continuously preparing ourselves for that day. Life application. We are as a bride to our bridegroom. Let's try to act like it. Okay, yeah, think about it. The girl's going to get married to the guy. Is she going to be doing things she shouldn't be doing unless she's a really perverse person? No, she's going to be preparing herself for the day when she gets married. I mean, that's what brides do. Okay, there you go. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We have time for one more. Finish the uh, chapter. Oh, no way. Let's just stop now then. We'll leave him hanging. No, no. no, no. <laughs> However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay. Before we finish, so I, I don't want to forget what I'm thinking. My mom didn't show up. I can't believe it. Hidako, would you, is anybody going out by Beneva? No. Nobody's going out. I, I, I can show you where. I just want somebody to take my mom's present to her. And if she's not home, to, okay, you just set it on her front door. Okay. And that's it. Yeah, well, I mean, or I could make her drive over here and get it. I could do that. I just don't want to forget that. When we get done, I don't want to forget that. So um, whatever. I could just tell her it's over here and come get it and make her, I don't know, whatever. I feel bad. And I'll call her later and tell her how much I love her. I'm not going to ignore her, but she didn't come to Bible class on her birthday. Okay. Call her today. Uh, well, that's because I was waiting to surprise her. It didn't happen. And I got all kinds of stuff to make her fat. She needs to chub up, doesn't she? Well, there you go. I got all. I went to, um, you know, what's the name of that place over here on Swift and um, Clark? Um, Detweiler's. Oh, I got all kinds of good food for her. Oh, candy and stuff. Okay, here we go. Um, okay, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of let each one of you, in particular, so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, this last verse of the chapter begins with, nevertheless, it is an indication that Paul is returning to the pr practical aspects of the husband-wife relationship. He's been speaking of the mystical union of Christ and the church, of which the husband and wife relationship is a pattern, in order to get back to the basics. From this high and lofty analogy, he brings it back down to a practical level with this word. In the human economy of marriage, this final admonition begins with, let each one of you, in particular, so love his wife as himself. This doesn't mean that a man is to love his wife as much as he loves himself, but he is to love her as if being his own self. This goes back to verse 31, which says that the two shall become one flesh. There is to be a love for the wife that maintains this united essence. Next, Paul says, and let the wife see that she respect her husband. The word translated as respect is phobeo. Actually, it's phobeo. It actually means to fear. You can see the word phobia, uh, you know, like yeah, uh, phobia. phobia. Thank you. Phobeo. Okay. Uh, this is the reverential fear that a person might have towards God. It is used in Matthew 9, 8 concerning the fear of the people when Jesus healed a paralytic. It is this type of reverential fear which is to be referred to. The wife is to give way to her husband in decisions and to submit to his authority with a reverence that is appropriate to his position as the human authority of the household. Life application. When the admonitions of Paul concerning the husband-wife relationship are ignored, or undermined, 
the family unit will inevitably fail to work properly. Each has been given a place by God, and all must adhere to that placement for the benefit of the family and to the honor of the Lord. So there you go with that. Ephesians 5 is done. What a wonder, you know, uh, Suzanne, she emailed me and she said, or no, she wrote me, I think. Anyway, she, uh, she said, I'm going to be so sad when Ephesians is over. I've liked it so much. And then she said, but I know the next book will be just as good. So hey, there you go. Good stuff. You know, I just love when people get excited about the word because it's so precious and there's so much information in here. And I know that my commentaries are short. They're not as uh, detailed as they should be. And I missed all kinds of information. But you know what? Well, I just, you know, I always feel guilty when I finish a commentary and I think, how much did I miss? How much did I not properly explain? And it just bothers me because it's such a precious word that, you know, you don't want to miss anything. And there's always something else that comes up that, just a marvelous word. Oh, well, good Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to come to you and to study your word in your presence and to pray for these people that uh, we mentioned earlier, to praise you for the new baby in the world and uh, to thank you for a mother who's having a birthday today. Lord, we have these opportunities in this life and help us to make use of them and to, to uh, just go forward, always living in your presence and honoring you with the lives that we have. Help it to be so, Lord. We just, we are distracted by so many things. And it would be great if you could just remind us throughout the entire day, day after day, that we are in a relationship with you because of Christ and that we should be getting ourselves ready for that eternal state. Help it to be so. Help us to be wise in the few days that we have, Lord. We thank you, we praise you, and we exalt you. And we do so in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Put this thing back here. Oh, let's see. Push this button. Yes.